everybody, and welcome to Stephen King Cast, one man's musings on the works of Stephen King. Uh, today, well, let, let me just start off and saying uh, happy Fourth of July, everybody. Um, I have some time on my hands, and I'm going to take advantage of that time to finally delve into a project that I have wanted to work on for a while now, which is, as I promised in the last episode, finally reviewing Joe Hill's Lock and Key comic book. So it's going to be a great episode where I get to uh, continue to remain in the world of Stephen King because I'm talking about Joe Hill. But also I'm going to be able to get to touch on stuff that I never really get to touch upon in my other reviews, and that's the world of, of comics, um, and specifically a uh, very important slice of comic book publication and comic book history and the relationship of this particular slice of um, comic book publication in regards to pop culture and horror, and that is the... Um, the horror genre within comic books. So that, of course, will lead me to discuss Joe Hill um, and his work within that that realm, uh, which is Lock and Key. Um, I love this comic book. I will get into many, many reasons why I love this comic book. And I'm glad that I'm able to do this because, as I stated in the last episode, my goal was this summer to watch and review Nosferatu. And I, I just don't... I just don't want to poo-poo all over something week in and week out. That's not what you guys want. Um, that's not really what I want to do with the time that I have, and that's not fair to everyone working on the Nosferatu show. So rather do that, I will spend my time focusing on the Joe Hill stuff that I do love, which is Lock and Key, which is not to say that I didn't like Nosferatu the book. I uh, definitely did enjoy the book, and I strongly encourage everyone to not just read the book, but also check out my review of it, which you can find here at the Stephen King cast. In fact, I just re-released it uh, a few weeks ago, so you don't have to, to go that far back. So I hope that everyone's enjoying their summer so far. I know that I am. Um... Uh, no joke, it is about 160 degrees outside right now. I just came in from uh, mowing my lawn, and um, now I'm just I'm able to relax a little bit. I have a couple minutes on my hands. I'm sure that the recording session for this podcast will take a few sessions before I get it out. I would love to get this episode out to you. Like I said, I just said happy 4th of July. I would love to get it out on the day that I'm recording this, July 3rd. If not, I hope to get it out by the evening of July 4th. Um, so fingers crossed, guys, by the time you read this, uh, or by the time you hear this, I definitely will have concluded my podcast uh, of this episode. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm, sending, I'm sending my thoughts into the future for you to bounce those goodwills and prayers back into the past um, so that I can get this done in a timely fashion. Before I get any farther, though, I want to take a couple minutes to uh, read the latest iTunes review that I received um, and an email that I, I just received as well. So up first, we have um, 
an iTunes review from Horror Lines, who writes, Best Stephen King podcast. Most thorough, five stars, most thorough King podcast out there treats the work and the author with respect, but the reviews are honest and critical when necessary without the millennial snark that seems to invade other similar podcasts. Um, Horror Lines, thank you. And uh, yeah, I, I th- that is definitely something that I try to do, um, with not necessarily avoid the millennial snark. Um, but yeah, try and keep things fair and balanced, and that's the, 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 the literary um, major uh, within me. I was well-trained with that. And um, no, that, that's, to, to get that acknowledgement, it means that I, I, I set out to do what I, what, I, um, what I intended to do. So I'm glad that everyone um, that has written in and left a review has appreciated that. So thank you, guys. Um, thank you, Horror Lines. And if you have a few moments on your hands, feel free to write into uh, iTunes uh, to help me out. A review really re- would really help me out. Um, and in terms of emails, uh, we have a recent one from Liz, who has written in before, um, and she, I really, really like this uh, email that she sent me um, this morning, early this morning, and uh, I'm very glad to read it on air. So Liz writes in response to my last episode, in which I discussed uh Nosferatu, Doctor Sleep, uh, It Chapter 2, the stand casting, and the announcement that they are making um, an Eyes of the Dragon uh, show on Hulu. So Liz's response is to this. So, dear constant reader, in your most recent episode, you mentioned a supposed upcoming Eyes of the Dragon adaptation from Hulu, and that you didn't really like the book. I was a bit taken aback because... While I remembered you saying it wasn't one of your favorites, it seemed unusual for you to so strongly be dismissive of any Stephen King book. I went back and listened to your original episode reviewing the book. I had listened to it before and remembered your thoughts, but that had been so long ago and I was in the process of binge listening to so many of your episodes that there was a lot I had forgotten. I greatly respect your opinion and I want to really listen to your critique. Your review was very well articulated, as all your reviews usually tend to be, and I understand where you are coming from, but even in your review, you openly admit that you feel you might not have given the book a fair shake and weren't sure if you were experiencing burnout um so let me interject uh it's it's crazy at this point now that we're approaching the fifth year anniversary of the stephen king cast the hearing these moments in time and 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 getting uh listener emails and facebook messages and and whatnot of people that are coming to the stephen king cast for the first time and uh getting these little snippets that i might have said at you know, when I was recording and yeah, I do remember, I do remember that is in the middle. Eyes of the Dragon is just early on slash middle of Stephen King of, of my project of making my way through the chronological, chronological order of, um, publication. And yeah, I remember started with the stand and I was just, I was feeling it. I was feeling burnout and I was able to get through it. Um, and which was good because I worked all that out by the time I got to the, 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 um, the, the heft of the Dark Tower and Insomnia um, uh, around that time, which was fantastic. But no, I do remember that. I do remember feeling burnt out. Um, so I just wanted to acknowledge that I, 
I remember that, and that's crazy. I also thought that it was unfair that you used your criticism of the illustrations, such as a major strike against the entire book. Illustrations are always a complete non-factor to me when critiquing the text of any book. To spend nearly eight full minutes just criticizing the illustrations of what was already a very short review felt unusually tangential. I realize I can't change your mind, but I would like to just offer my counter opinion. Um, And let me uh, interject here. Uh, I mean, Liz is completely fair. I mean, she is completely right, and I should be called out for that because the illustrations do not have anything to do with Stephen King's story. They are there as supplemental material. um, And maybe it was unfair that I let that shade my opinion, but... As objective as I try to be, there's times when I just I, I can't help but feel subjective. And for whatever reason, when it comes to Eyes of the Dragon, I can't muster up enough interest to remain completely um, objective, which is a really weird way of saying it. But I mean, my the, the fact that it is a slog for me to read, even though it is so light, um, I think th- th- to me it... The, the, I I just don't really have an interest in this novel, and the illustrations don't help. And what my point was, maybe I, I articulated this in my review or not, but if anything, the illustrations could have helped me get into the book more. And it's, it's really cool that I'm able to read this during the episode that I'm, I'm, I'm reviewing um, Lock and Key, which you know, is a marriage of illustration and text, um, pictures and words. Uh, so that that's perfect. But it, it's also interesting that as I am reading this email, as I'm recording this episode, as I'm talking about all of this, what I'm doing, you know, every night for an hour or so, I'm reading uh, Game of Thrones, um, which... On a side note, I had never read Game of Thrones before. I loved the, I love and I already miss the show. I know that the final season's getting knocked about horribly, um, but I, I just enjoyed it. I enjoyed watching it. I miss my Sunday nights of sitting down because every every episode just felt like an event. And because I enjoyed my Sunday nights so much of not knowing what was going to happen, I never read the books purposely because you know clearly with matters regarding um, a lot of books, Stephen King, um, comic books. I am in the know uh, when it comes to adaptations. And Game of Thrones was in my, was within my wheelhouse, but I purposely chose not to read them because I loved the, the surprises and the emotions that I got from the production of the show and entering that world first. And um, I, I say all of this because now that I'm reading Game of Thrones, the edition that I'm reading, it's an illustrated edition, and it's chock full of incredible, incredible illustrations that take me deeper into the world, a world that um, I first entered through pure visualization um, of the story and you know on that on top of George R. Martin's hyper detailed prose the illustrations somehow are even are, are make it even more crystal clear for me to 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 watch or to to read so um they they they, they give me 
alternate views of a scene or a character or an emotion or a story. Uh, they make me visualize characters um, in, in beautiful or, or horrible or tragic or frightening ways that I didn't necessarily envision them. And for a for me to be reading this after I had spent all these years with the actors portraying these characters, to have this book and to have these illustrations put new images into my head, it makes me like the Eyes of the Dragon illustrations even less. Um, so I, I, I know what you're saying, Liz, but I, I see what the power of illustrations can be. And to me, the fact that the illustrations just are, to me personally, um, are not impactful um, and whatever the style is actually kind of is off-putting to me. It, it keeps Eyes of the Dragon even at a further distance for me than, than, than I would like it to. Um, but Liz is going to offer her counter-opinion to me right here. So she goes, I love Eyes of the Dragon for several reasons. The first is nostalgia, which is obviously unique to me. Not only was it the first Stephen King book I ever read, but at 10 years old, it was the first book I read of that magnitude. While it obviously is more juvenile than most of Stephen King's work, it was still leaps and bounds longer and more adult than when I was reading at the time. Compared to Raw Dahl, Narnia, Maniac McGee, Goosebumps, and other things a typical fifth grader would read, which are closer to novellas, I realize now that Eyes of the Dragon was the first book I ever read that could truly be called a novel. It was my first experience reading a book that was lengthy, that challenged me, that had a large cast of characters, that had characters that seemed minor and surprised you when they ended up growing up in prominence, that spanned years in its narrative, and that ultimately felt like a rewarding accomplishment to finish. I have read the book several times since, and while it will never compare with Stephen King's best, I will always have a soft spot for it. But the second reason is what I alluded to. This was King's attempt at writing for a young adult audience. Whether or not he succeeded is arguable, but at least he was trying something new for him that could speak to the child and readers. In your review, you made the comment that the book is harder to enjoy in a post-Game of Thrones world. Speaking as a just recent Game of Thrones fan, I really feel the two stories are apples and oranges. If any King book is comparable to Game of Thrones, it would be The Dark Tower, as both are high-fantasy, genre-bending series. Eyes of the Dragon is YA fantasy, and specifically an homage. If anything, it's more comparable to the likes of The Princess Bride, Labyrinth, The Dark Crystal, and Willow. That's a type of YA fantasy that was popular circa 1987. And Liz is absolutely correct. Um, yep. I just, I do feel, though, when it gets made by Hulu, this is my bet, that they're going to Game of Thrones it up. That's my bet. Third reason, the villain is Flag. What more do you need? It may not be the best iteration of this character, but it's still a great first exposure to him. I agree. Fourth reason, of all the supporting characters, I really love Queen Sasha and think she's a pivotal part of the novel's first half. And you didn't even mention her in your character breakdowns. Yes, King Roland is a stock character, but Sasha humanizes him. Her God-slash-dog conversation with Peter is one of my favorite scenes and one of the healthiest parent-child moments in any of Stephen King's works. This memory is the defining experience that makes child Peter grow up to be the adult that he does. And her death is the cause... Oh, Spoiler alert. <laughs> Spoiler alert, guys. And her death is the cause of the emotional chasm between the two brothers. It was clever to King to tell us up front that Sasha... Spoiler alert. Uh, ...will die and then spo spend so much time making her so endearing, making uh, Roland 
making her Roland's opposite in every way. Sasha also grows a lot in her brief time in the book, going from being a young girl who doesn't understand how lovemaking works to a nurturing mother who, from just one conversation, is able to be the dominant figure of Peter's life. His escape plan from the needle is all indirectly Sasha's influence, and that's a great character-building payoff. I realize I can't change your opinion, but if you do decide to give the book another chance, I really would encourage you to put yourself in the mindset of a child or a tween who is reading a YA novel and wants just a good, rip-roaring adventure fairy tale. On a final note, I think that A6, A7 might have been King's peak year. It's amazing to think that he published this, it, the drawing of the three, and misery in such quick succession. Keep doing what you're doing, and I hope you continue providing us with great quality content on your podcast. Liz, thank you for writing in and hitting me with uh, your counterpoints, which are all very well articulated. And yes, not mentioning Sasha at all is a huge blind spot in the review of Eyes of the Dragon. So I'm glad that you were able to write in and be able to speak for her um, and for all of the fans that I might have let down by not giving a more thorough and just review of Eyes of the Dragon. So um, it, I, I still don't like it. I completely cerebrally understand where you're coming from. I see your points. And I, I think that this is this is why I want everyone to write in because I need this kind of conversation. So if there's anyone out there that has any thoughts on Eyes of the Dragon or any of Stephen King's works that I never touched upon or you don't necessarily agree with, please write into stephenkingcast at yahoo.com. Okay, guys. So with that out of the way, now I can fully focus my attention on lock and key, something that I've been talking about doing for years now, and finally I get to do it. I'm so excited. So when it comes to Joe Hill, I have reviewed Horns, I, the book. I never really reviewed the, the movie. That's something I could do too. Um, I think that's still on Netflix. I should get around to it. But anyway, uh, Horns, the book, Nosferatu, the book, touched upon Nosferatu, the first episode um, on my last episode, um, 20th Century Ghosts, uh, and the fireman, and um, I still need to get around to reviewing uh, Heart Shape Box, which I'm really, really excited about. And uh, okay, and then oh, um, Strange Weather. I also uh, reviewed Strange Weather by Joe Hill, and I will be reviewing Full Throttle this fall when that comes out. So, lock and key. Uh, this is important to to contextualize here because, like I said earlier in this episode. When people think of comic books, if I say comic book, the first thing that is going to come into your mind, actually, at this point uh, in, in our lives, you're probably going to think of maybe, what, Robert Downey Jr., um, Thanos, um, the, the Avengers, Marvel movies, Batman, Superman. Um, but I would say that, you know, that more than anything else, the, the, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, the MCU characters that are run by Marvel... Um, and Kevin Feige, owned by Disney, uh, the, these are the ones that probably are the first ones to pop in your head, depending on what generation you're from. Um, it could be Christopher Reeve as Superman. It could be Michael Keaton as Batman. It could be Adam West as Batman. Um, so there are, there are many iterations of characters out there that you immediately might think of. Now, I have just spent a minute talking about this, and what I've been talking about is superheroes. Normally, when people first think about comic books, 
they think about the superhero genre, which, granted, is the dominant genre of comic books. If you go to a comic book store and you go to the rack, you're going to see a wall mostly of colorfully clad um, superheroes, whether it be from DC, Marvel, uh, you know, Image, or or other um, or other companies. You're going to see superheroes because superheroes sell. However, historically, when comic books first started hitting the scene, superheroes was just one genre of many genres of comic books that you could get. Romance comic books, westerns, and, of course, horror. And there is a long tradition of horror comic books influencing culture and pop culture and influencing the next generation of um, storytellers from way back and continues still. And I only read two kinds of um, comic books. I read the superheroes and I read horror. Horror still exists. It's still a strong, ongoing uh, genre within the comic book medium, so much so that, in fact, um, DC just announced that they are creating their own pop-up imprint with Joe Hill uh, called Hill House, and he will be overseeing a line of horror-themed comic books, which is fantastic. And this is in the wake of the um, uh, disillusion um, and and dissolving of uh, the Vertigo imprint. So for anyone that has known about comic book publication and imprints, then you'll know that the Vertigo line uh, was for many, many years a uh, very well-received, very well-respected by critics, by consumers, and by creators, um, a line that allowed for more adult and mature storytelling that um, most often dabbled and and dwelled within the horror genre. So, And it was created by the editor Karen Berger, and most famously, you know, that is where Sandman by Neil Gaiman, which is now going to be a Netflix mini or a Netflix show, um, which I have. Uh, I'm I'm now reading Sandman Overture um, again for the second time, which came out a couple years ago, and I I just don't, you know, I mean, I know that George R. R. Martin had sat down to write Game of Thrones with the purpose of of having it be an unfilmable story. But, I mean, that's got nothing on Sandman. Sandman, what works about Sandman is that it is so literary and it does embrace that dreamy sweet spot of, to simplify it, but words and pictures, but where that the, the storytelling kind of just blends of, of the, 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 the potency of words and the illustrators. It's like that moment, and I, this was referred to by... Um, I don't know if it was Neil Gaiman or someone that was writing an introduction to one of the trade paperbacks, but reading Sandman is like that 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 split second moment where your consciousness is is that that exact mixture of waking and dreaming thoughts right before you fall asleep, and that is captured so much so in the experience of reading it as a comic book, right? So I just don't see how that translates 
into a show. But that's just me. But, you know, going back to horror comics, um, you know, it started out very much as a horror comic. It became something so much more. It would every now and then dip back into uh, horrific elements in the horror genre, but it became so much more than that. But, um, but that is just one example of that, uh, of, of what can be horror within, within comic books. I mean, you, you have the, um, the Corinthian who is the, the, the visual of the Corinthian. So picture this for the, if you though, if you don't know who I'm talking about, well, the Sandman is about a, um, a dream of the endless. So in the universe, there are there are gods you know like there's the christian god there's the christian devil there are egyptian gods uh greek gods any 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 story any mythology that's ever existed exists within this universe and sort of not necessarily lording over but in higher esteem and higher regard and just in terms of power um there are seven beings known as the endless, um, which suggests that gods will rise and fall when those that believe in them will um, die off eventually, and their their stories and their potency will dissipate and go elsewhere. Right, but there are seven fundamental components to the universe and consciousness. Um, and that is, let's see if I can get this right. Um, it is destiny and death and destruction and desire and delirium and dream, of course. And then who am I missing? I'm missing one desire, delirium, destruction, death, destiny, it's going to kill me. This is killing me. It'll come to it anyway. But anyway, these are the endless. They are the ones that are, um, they're just that. They are endless. Uh, they, they will always be. They cannot be killed. They cannot be contained. Um, they, they will exist longer and later. So it, it focuses primarily on dream of the endless who oftentimes is referred to as morpheus and his uh very emo uh existence interacting with humanity gods devils his his brothers and sisters um and it's uh despair despair is the the final one um and uh it, it's so breathtaking and so high concept and it's it's beautiful and uh so he is the lord of the dreaming so every time you dream every dream that you have every story that is told is all within his realm and he is responsible for 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 that um so there's a character that he creates going back to the horror genre called the corinthian and so picture this um and it's his reflect and so he wanted to create something that reflected humanity and uh, picture a well-dressed man um, in a suit uh, with white hair who always wore sunglasses. And when he takes his sunglasses off, it's terrible. Rather than having eyes, he has teeth where his eyes should be. Two tiny mouths. And he's a serial killer. And he births the concept of serial killers. And it's So he's a great example of, of the horror genre existing within the world of... Uh, Sandman, but Sandman is only one of many examples of 
of the of the horror genre existing within comic books maybe most famously is EC Comics and think and I've mentioned EC Comics a lot on this podcast and I think that that um, that comic book uh, and or uh, that brand those comic books um, that had come out of EC Comics Tales from the Crypt Tales from the Vault um, they, they they truly did inspire Stephen King and a lot of his short stories especially his earlier ones they definitely feel as though they are a part of the world of EC Comics and, um, you know, in the 1990s, you know, being a 90s kid uh, growing up, and I've mentioned this many times on the podcast, but Saturday nights at 11 o'clock, I loved, loved sitting down on my couch um, and watching Tales from the Crypt. Uh, and I, I, I really miss that. And, uh, you know, anthology horror shows are making a comeback. You know, we're going to be getting uh, Creep Show will be coming back and that of course the the the, the style of creep show is inspired by tales from the crypt so again going back to joe hill young joe hill was in uh creep show uh and and that was sort of stephen king and george romero's homage to the the, the impact that ec comics had on them as storytellers um and then in the the the, the late 80s Swamp Thing. Now you can watch a new Swamp Thing television show, get it while it's still there because it already got canceled. I'm not watching it, but the reviews are saying that it really is leaning into its horror roots. So again, we have this character, Swamp Thing, um, and if you want really strong um, comic book horror with incredible, just groundbreaking artistic styles um, married with a writer at the height of his prime, um, Alan Moore. Um, Alan Moore reinvented the, the the core concept of Len Wein and Bernie Wrightson's Swamp Thing. Bernie Wrightson, of course, is someone that I've talked about many times before on this podcast with um, his artistic contributions to The Dark Tower and The Stand and Cycle of the Werewolf um, and uh, Creepshow itself. But, you know, he co-created Swamp Thing, and we all know Swamp Thing. You, you might know Swamp Thing either from the comic books, maybe the 1990s cartoon, uh, which has maybe the best uh, theme song of all cartoons ever. I, I challenge you, go out right now and listen to it. Type in Swamp Thing cartoon intro and thank me later. Uh, you might remember it from... Uh, like I said, the, the 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 movies that had come out in in the late '80s or early '90s, um, but for me, you know, when I think of Swamp Thing, I think of the Alan Moore run, which was incredible. And again, it's about something that is not human fighting humanity, fighting um, concepts and beings and demons and devils and arcane magic. Very. Ar- there's a character called Arcane. Uh, it's 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 horrifying. It's terrifying. It's um, it's heady. It's uh, beautiful. It will break your heart. It will make you think. It will do many things. And it's the celebration of what art and words can do within the 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 realm of horror. Um, similarly, uh, it's this is a the next example is a closer um to our time period now but uh scott snyder 
who is one of the top tier writers nowadays um, and a co-collaborator of his, Jock. Uh, They have um, a book called Witches. And Witches is, um, there's only one volume so far. I'm eagerly anticipating the next. It is a screwy um, mindfuck of a story and it's haunting with its uh, existence existentialism that it brings and the concept is that witches exist but not witches the way that you think but um it really does for the woods kind of like what the blair witch project had done what uh jaws did for the water um it really celebrates that idea of something hiding just behind the tree and what if a tree really wasn't a tree and so much of the the, the potency of which is is in just the 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 emotion that Jock, the artist, is able to wring out of the story. Um, we have Beasts of Burden, published by Dark Horse. Uh, Beasts of Burden, it, it's going to trick you into thinking that it's a cute and cuddly book because it's about neighborhood animals uh, and pets fighting off forces of evil in their neighborhood, and it sounds very. Very light, very fun, very kid-friendly. It's not. It's sad, and it's hard to read, especially if you love animals. But it really is an embrace of the horror genre. I already talked about Sandman. Crossed, I never got into. That is uh, Garth Ennis's um, uh, book, Post Preacher. Uh, I was a huge preacher fan. I never got into Cross, but it's it's a uh, it's a very zombie apocalyptic uh, story. But that is another example. The Wake um, again is I think it came out like six years ago or so. Time is flying. I just reread it last year. It's a good beach read, actually, guys. Um, it's a almost a twelve issue series. I think it's about twelve issues, um, and it is all about sea monsters. That's really what it comes down to, and it's it's two parts. One takes place in the present, and spoiler alert, one, the, the second half takes place in the future. Um, and one is a great high-concept uh, story that is just eagerly awaiting uh, an adaptation about uh, a, um, you know, a scientist who has devoted her life to sonar, um, of deep sea creatures being brought aboard a high, um, a, a very secretive underwater project. Um, and it turns out that a, a merman, uh, has been captured and it's monstrous. And so there's, uh, you know, much like Jurassic Park had your, um, uh, you know, what's the term plant scientist you know the the ellie sadler laura dern character herbologist is that that's not right um but you had uh you know uh the the, the malcolm ian malcolm character you had the, the the alan grant character you had all characters within their realms of expertise coming together around this one central concept same thing here you have um a big game hunter you have someone that specializes in folklore you have someone that specializes in um you know marine biology you have someone that specializes in uh you know uh, sonar and and sounds um so they're all coming together to study this thing as 
you know, just shit goes down in this underwater uh, facility. So for fans of the Abyss and fans of uh, Deep Star 6 and Leviathan, this is completely up your alley. And the second half is just batshit crazy um, taking place in the future where mankind is trying to just deal with this threat. So I strongly recommend the, the Wake, especially if you're listening to this in the summer. I just mentioned Bernie Wrightson, RIP. That's a great loss that we lost, Bernie Wrightson. But his Frankenstein uh, adaptation is a, a the pinnacle of of his art and the hyper detailed um, illustrations of Mary Shelley's classic. Uh, every panel could be printed, framed, and hanging on your wall. It's beautiful. Uh, From Hell, another uh, Alan Moore uh, example here. This From Hell was adapted. It's not the adaptation is not great. It's not good, and does not get into the the detail that Alan Moore does. But this is a a, a much it's a different kind of horror that he did with Swamp Thing. This is a much more humanistic horror, though it does there is a an occult aspect to it that you'll get out of it. And you know, Alan Moore likes his horror, and in more recent years, he has been dabbling in the world of H.P. Lovecraft, um, and he—it's really disturbing, pornographic, borderline pornographic. Um, the Courtyard, Neo Namicon, and Providence, um, done really well. And the thing that you that that is great about Alan Moore is that. It requires, an Alan Moore read requires uh, at least four readings before you truly start to get it and start piecing it together. And now that we live in a day and age of the internet where there's annotations out there, you can sort of cut to the chase. And so I would I would recommend if you're going to dive in there, and spoiler warning, guys, it's not an easy read. These three, um, it's basically a trilogy. It's a trilogy of... Um, of Alan Moore doing a riff on H.P. Uh, Lovecraft. And his whole hypothesis is that the, the Lovecraft stories are sexless so that he reworks them with the knowledge that the omission of, of sex and sexuality from H.P. Lovecraft's original stories um, is a commentary in of itself so that when he, when he Alan Moore, writes it, he fills in those gaps and he fills in the spaces that H.P. Lovecraft had left open by not talking about it. And so he feels that the omission of it was an invitation to rework these stories and flooding it with commentary on sex and sexuality. Um, and it's very blatant. It's, it's very explicit. Uh, and it, there are parts that are incredibly disturbing. Uh, so it is a heady, heavy, uh, again, existentialism and dread and dreadful and despairing, uh, experience. There is Nameless, speaking about dread and existentialism, Nameless by, um, uh, Grant Morrison. Grant Morrison is my favorite comic book writer. Uh, Grant Morrison also does, uh, horror very, very well. In the, the case of Nameless. So for, for those who like Event Horizon, uh, Nameless is going to be up your alley. And again, what and what's cool about Grant Morrison, and I just 
piggybacked off of uh, Alan Moore. They are both magicians uh, practicing different types of magic and both don't like each other. I love that I live in a world where you have two incredibly literate, um, high-powered genre genre bending and genre breaking and groundbreaking and forward thinking comic book writers are, are two magician two magic wielding comic book writers who hate each other are and have been in a long standing feud with one another um it's it it I love that I live in this world famously Grant Morrison claims that he was abducted or not abducted by aliens but um was he purposefully went on a sojourn which led to his well yeah i guess being abducted by sort of spiritual aliens and he was taken out of his body he was going on a quest and there is a documentary on grant morrison that you need to read you need to listen to his interview with kevin smith on fat man on batman to truly get into um how how crazy um, his story is, but with all, with all of that said, I mean, the man tells an incredible story. He gets to this emotional truth, um, and terror. Um, he loves stories. He loves, uh, he, he loves comic books. He loves com. he loves superheroes and he does horror very well as well. And, uh, nameless is a strong example, um, of him doing that. 30 Days of Night, um, Steve Niles, I believe. It was made into a movie uh, in the early 2000s. Um, great concept. What if vampires descended on an Alaskan town on the first day of um, when it's just a long stretch of, of darkness? Great concept, you know, and it's a great mix of just, uh, of, uh, you know, a, a one for the road, Right, which is that um, Salem's Lot sequel with Salem's Lot itself? Um, you know, just a I, I like stories set in snow, and I like horror. So this is a great balance of that. Um, the next one I'm going to say is going to sound like a joke, but it's not. Uh, Franco Francavalla, I believe the artist is. Um, I think who is the writer? I'll find out right now. Um, Roberto. Aguirre uh, Sacasa, who is the He's the Kevin Feige of the the world of Archie, and I, I know it, it sounds like I'm I'm setting this up for a joke, but it's not. It's an incredible little comic book story, a horror horror genre horror genre. The, the art is phenomenal, and it's basically about zombies. What if the zombie apocalypse was occurring within the world of Archie? It it, it sounds ridiculous, but it, it really is good horror. It's really really well done. Um, and then there's some. Some more recent ones. One that I've been reading lately is an anthology series uh, published by Image Comics, uh, written by Martin uh, Morazzo and uh, drawn by Chris O'Halloran, um, and that's Ice Cream Man. And for fans of the Randall Flag, uh, Leland Gaunt, Pennywise type of characters from Stephen King, you really will like uh, the Ice Cream Man. So basically, it's what if the ice cream man that drives up and down your streets during the summer truly is a uh, just evil, you know, devilish imp 
that sows destruction in his wake. And every issue is just one pretty much self-contained horror story um, about something truly horrific happening to someone. And of course, the, the ice cream man, Rick, is always at the heart of it. And you get so many different types of horror stories. There's one, the most recent one takes place far, far, far in the future in space. Um, and you've had ones set deep in the past. You've had them set in different countries. There, there's one that has been sticking with me lately about reality television um, that is, is truly haunting. Um, and there's this whole mythology to it where it there is a... You know, for even though they're all standalone issues, um, there are threads that are are running through of the backstory of the ice cream man Rick, and there's this um, kind of gunslingerish character that keeps coming for him by the name of Caleb, um, and their backstory is touched upon. And so, for fans of your just self-contained horror, it's there for you. But if you like a larger mythology, you've got that too. Much like. You have a variety of ice creams out there. Um, the Ice Cream Man is the book for you. And there's some truly, truly horrific images uh, to be found within that book. Um, another one that I have been totally into lately um, is a more recent one, and that is Gideon Falls. And Gideon Falls is, again, published by Image Comics. Um, and Image Comics basically had taken up what Vertigo had set down in uh, Vertigo being an imprint, like I had talked about, of DC. Uh, Image Comics said, you know what? We're going to be a creator-based. You come over to us, do what you want. Um, and many people have come to them for that and have created great horror uh, comics you know, from it. So Gideon Falls is another example. Uh, Jeff Lemire is the writer. Um, Andrea Sorrentino is the artist and the blending? Oh my God! The 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 mix of the art um, and the story are transcendent, um, and it's haunting, and it's all you know. So you're going to get a little bit of the Dark Tower in this. Is that there is something called the Black Barn, um, and it seems to be this this um, physical object that allows you to transverse space and time, and it is a it's a mystery horror sci-fi story that is going to break your brain, break your heart. You feel corrupted as you read it. Um, it's good stuff. I strongly recommend Gideon Falls. Uh, and uh, I think there's like, there, there's a good chunk out there. I think like 16 or so issues, maybe more. American Vampire, um, another uh, Scott Snyder example. Th this is cool. American Vampire was originally set in the Old West and it's worked its way up through the throughout the years. And it's really it's about that. It's about an American vampire and it's about just the the, the world of vampires through the our entryway was the the West. And Stephen King um, famously wrote some backup stories um, during the the first uh, the first volume. And I don't know whatever happened with uh, American Vampire. I don't know if it concluded or not, but um, that's just yet another example of Scott Snyder, who, you know, his biggest claim to fame is always going to be his Batman run, but at his heart, I believe, is a comic book, uh, is, a, is a horror writer. And, um, you know, American Vampire is definitely something that is worth checking out. But, you know, I cannot talk about comic book horror 
without talking about a little book that, as of today, all of this, all of everything I'm talking about today, it's all kind of coming full circle. Today was the perfect day to report record this particular podcast, but um, it's it's very fitting that I'm recording this today. That the final issue of this next book that I'm going to talk about uh, was released today. And that is a little book called, you might have heard of it, The Walking Dead. Um, 15, 16 years ago, that makes me me feel really old, Robert Kirkman um, published The Walking Dead, which was a little zombie book that could, and, uh, you know, he really put... The, the, the focus on the humans and the characterization of the humans. And clearly, I don't have to tell you anything about The Walking Dead that you don't already know. It is an immensely popular television show that I have, you know, I've taken digs at, which kind of been might have been mean-spirited at times. Um, I've dropped off the, the, the television show bandwagon for anyone that derives pleasure from it. Laud you for it. I'm glad that you're able to get pleasure from it, even though I myself am not um, able to do so. That's the joy of of television. It's the joy of all of the different forms of entertainment that we have in our lives. Is that what I might not like, you might like, and that's great. Um, you know, and I fell off the the, the comic book as well. Um, personally, for me, without an end point. It's too open world. It's too open. It's it, I don't know. I just it, there was too much repetition of of storytelling um, and and story beats and story cycles and there's there just wasn't enough there there for me um, after a while um, to 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 continue reading The Walking Dead. But I will say for a good few years that was required reading and it was one of the things that I sought out first with uh on on wednesday releases and i have um incredible memories of those early issues and walking for hours with my best friend talking about um those early days of the walking dead and um that was during the the big zombie boom of the early 2000s um along with uh Shaun of the Dead, and 28 Days Later, and Dawn of the Dead, and, um, you know, The Walking Dead was was right there with it, and, uh, you know, at that time, it was just great to see horror represented within the medium that I loved so much, and today, Robert Kirkman concluded his book. I haven't read it yet. I haven't read uh, the, the final issue. I'm looking forward to it. I've, I dropped, I've dropped off um, for years now. Um, but I, uh, I, I'm eagerly anticipating getting this, this particular issue. I want to see how it concludes. Uh, but I mean, and I, I just got to say that this is a cash cow. It's consistently a, a top-selling book week, you know, month in and month out. The trade paperbacks are constant bestsellers. Um, the television show is still a huge success, even though, um, you know, ratings are dropping. It's That's comparative, right? You know, I mean, you still compare that against anything else in television. It's still a juggernaut. There is a, uh, there's Fear the Walking Dead, which is still going. There's another spinoff that's going to be occurring. You have the Rick Grimes series of movies that AMC is going to be producing. It is not going away anytime soon. There is a booming tourist industry in Georgia around uh, the, the Walking Dead. 
And all of this sprung from the comic book in the mind of, of um, Robert Kirkman and Charlie, Charlie Adler and Tony Moore. Uh, so they're, to walk away from that, that is a very respectable and ballsy move on his part. I got to give him credit. Even though I dropped off the book years ago, I really have to give him credit to say, no, I, my story is going to conclude on my terms when I want to, despite the fact that I could pump this out once a month for the rest of my life, knowing that it was just going to gain me more and more money. It also probably speaks to the fact that he has more money that he knows what to do with at this point. But still, the fact that he is able to just walk away from that, that is incredibly, incredibly admirable. Um, and, you know, again, it's a great story about, the, or at least the early issues were, um, of, of humanity um, set well within the horror genre. So guys, it has been an hour now, and I've been talking all about horror within comic books. I haven't even touched upon Lock and Key. And to me, Lock and Key fits firmly within all of these. And these are just some examples of um, horror within the, the comic book genre. There are so many more, and I strongly recommend you go out and do it because, like I said, you think about superheroes when you think about comic books. You don't think about um, how an artist can use his or her medium to to help uh, convey an, an off-putting feeling or sensation or to, I want to say, hurt your eyes, but yeah, to hurt your eyes um, and to convey horror. You know, this, this, this podcast was born out of my appreciation of prose and how the, the combination of words created a, a, um, a magic spell that uh, created an image in my head that previously had not existed. Um, what comic books were able to do, it's different from prose because it is the, 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 the magic combination of the, the spells of the, the words with the visualizations of the, of the, 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 the artist's conjuring um, and the, this colliding and creating emotion in a way that pure prose cannot. It's different and it creates a different experience um, and it's rich and it's worth exploring. So for anyone that has never delved into the, the, the world of, of comic books because you might have thought that it's just for kids or you might have thought that it is just superheroes, please understand that there's a whole other world out there um, of, of horror for you uh, that you can uh, truly um, get something out of. So let me talk about Lock and Key. So I am going to review Lock and Key, the series, by each story arc. And you can find the story arcs um, collected in trade paperbacks or uh, digital publications. So the, the, the first one is uh, Volume 1, Welcome to Lovecraft. And so for all intents and purposes, I'm going to be reviewing this first volume so each of these issues I'm going, to be, I'm going to review in this episode. But to start off, I'm going to read the Wikipedia summary of the entirety, okay? The summary of the entire story that runs throughout the, the first series of issues. Um, and then, once I'm done with that 
Wikipedia summary, which will just set the stage. Um, I'm then going to give my review of each of the issues along with the Wikipedia summary of that particular, particular issue so I can go into more detail. Okay, So from Wikipedia of the first story arc, Welcome to Lovecraft, in Willits, California, the Locke family are spending their summer. Uh, Tyler Locke, the oldest son of Rendell and Nina Locke, is upset that his own summer plans had been canceled by his father after an argument. The family is soon attacked by Sam Lesser. Sam, under the orders of Dodge, demands Rendell turn over the Anywhere key and the Omega key. Rendell refuses and is killed. The Locks move to Rendell's childhood home, Key House, in Lovecraft, Massachusetts, escorted by Rendell's younger brother, Duncan Locke, while exploring the manor. I'm sorry, while exploring the manor, Tyler's youngest sibling, Bodie Locke, discovers that he can use the ghost key to leave his body and become a ghost. Meanwhile, Sam is contacted by Dodge, who promises to help him escape from the detention facility he was taken to after murdering Rendell. Bode continues to explore the well house, experimenting with the ghost key, learning he can teleport around the property by thinking about who he wants to see. Back in his body, he soon hears an echo speak to him from the well. He uses the ghost key to descend into the well as a ghost. At the bottom, he finds a woman who senses his presence and speaks to him. She asks him to come back when he isn't a ghost, claiming she wants to be his friend. Bodhi returns and is told stories by the lady in the well about magical keys and doors. The lady tells him that she is an echo that was brought to life in the well house but can't leave through the door without fading away. She tells him that the only way she can leave the well house is with the anywhere key. The lady asks Bodhi to bring her a mirror and a pair of scissors so she can cut her hair. Bodhi complies, dropping a bag down the well. The lady, revealing herself to Sam as Dodge, delivers the items to Sam in the detention center so that he may use them to escape. Sam escapes to the detention center, killing several guards in the process. He begins traveling towards Massachusetts to confront the locks. Meanwhile, the middle lock child, Kinsey, struggles with her image, having abandoned her more eccentric style in an attempt to blend in at Lovecraft Academy. She meets and befriends fellow student Jackie Veda and coach Ellie Whedon, a classmate of her father's. After taking Taking some advice from Ellie, Kinsey cuts her hair and reassumes a style closer to her older image. As they speak, Ellie becomes distracted by Kinsey's bracelet, noticing a key in it. As Sam arrives at Lovecraft, Bodhi is taken hostage by Dodge. Sam beats Kinsey unconscious and Nina and locks Nina and Duncan in the cellar and disables Tyler. He drags the siblings to their mother, demanding she give them the Omega key and the Anywhere key. In the wellhouse, Dodge tells Bodhi that Sam has arrived and will kill his family unless Bodhi brings her the Anywhere key. Bodhi tries to use the ghost key to teleport to Anywhere anywhere key but finds himself next to Kenzie. At first thinking it didn't work, he soon realizes the anywhere key is in Kinsey's bracelet. He returns to his body, leaving the ghost key in the door. Sneaking down to the cellar, he takes Kinsey's bracelet and returns it to the wellhouse. Nina lies, telling Sam that the keys are in her room, hoping Tyler can use the opportunity to use her gun to stop Sam. Tyler is unable to get the gun as his hands are bound. Tyler tries to run away and is knocked through the ghost door, which Bodhi left activated. Tyler becomes a ghost and Sam believes he killed him. Sam drags Tyler's body back to the cellar, again threatening Nina. Tyler, recalling what Bodhi told him about how it was good how 
it was to be a ghost, realizes he could re-enter his body. He surprised Sam, knocking him over. Kinsey, waking up, takes Sam's gun and shoots him twice. Bodie delivers the Anywhere key to Dodge, who uses it to escape the wheelhouse to Kinsey's room. She uses the gender key on a small door at the back of Kinsey's closet to become a young man. He soon finds Sam bleeding and stumbles through the halls. Dodge breaks Sam's neck, throwing him through the ghost door, leaving Sam as a ghost with no body to return to. Dodge then enters Ellie's house, pointing out that she owes him for killing her mother. Two weeks later, Bodie is fishing in one of the ponds at Key House with Kinsey. Tyler arrives and introduces Zach Wells, the newest alias assumed by Dodge. After ta- after as ta- as Tyler, Kinsey, and Dodge head to the beach, Bodie reels in the line to find the head key. Okay, so that is the entirety of the Welcome to Lovecraft uh, story arc. Now let me just kind of re-read the chunk that I'm going to be talking about in more detail with issue one from Wikipedia. In Willits, California, the Locke family are spending their summer. Tyler Locke, the oldest son of Rendell and Nina Locke, is upset that his own summer plans have been canceled by his father after an argument. The family is soon attacked by Sam Lesser. Sam, under the orders of Dodge, demands Rendell turn over the Anywhere key and the Omega key. Rendell refuses and is killed. The Locks move Rendell's chi- to Rendell's childhood home, Key House, in Lovecraft, Massachusetts. While exploring the manor, Tyler's youngest sibling, Bodie Locke, discovers that he can use the ghost key to leave his body and become a ghost. Meanwhile, Sam is contacted by Dodge, who promises to help him escape from the detention facility he was taken to after murdering Rendell. Whew! Okay, so that was a lot to take in, and I'm glad that I read it that way by giving you the overview and then giving you um, just a look at the issue that I'm going to be talking about now. Because with comic books, what's great about comic books is that they can be very complex and you have the benefit of having half of the story presented to you through visuals. And when you read a summary like that, it is, it can sound very convoluted. It can, it can sound very, very complex. There's a lot of characters. There's a lot of, I don't want to say time hopping but there's dual narratives here with you know one of the things that I love about Stephen King and what I loved about Stephen King as I read it was that back and forth between the two different time periods and we're going to get that a lot um, with Lock and Key so uh, a generalized uh, summary like that followed by um, a more specific summary of each issue that's how we're going to work our way through the story which brings me to my review of issue one of Lock and Key um, and let's begin with the very first image for a story revolving around magic keys and the danger of what lurks behind secret doors what better way to kick it off um, than to reveal a door seemingly simple beautiful welcoming A butterfly floats by. This image conveys peace, tranquility, a summer day, spring at the very least, with the stonework and the look of the wood. Do you get the impression that it's in a bucolic Celtic home? It might convey that to you, or not. But regardless, the door itself is inviting. You want to step through it into the larger story. Our single caption reads, Mendocino Valley before. This is an old comic trick, but nevertheless effective. It gives us a timeline, and it gives us a mystery. Before what? Page two gives us the answer. The image of the door is replaced. 
Instead, we know we have three panels stacked atop of each other, the panels connoting a door. Within the panels, we meet the horrors that have arrived upon the quaint welcoming door, Sam and Al. Look, within three panels, Hill and Rodriguez have conveyed so much information, the danger they present with their gun and their hatchet, their names, their age, their relationship to the woman who answers the door, their former students here to speak with Nina's husband, their former guidance counselor, Rendell Locke. Not only are our authors presenting danger front and present, but they don't forget to give us the necessary info to understand the basics of the scene that's about to play out. If the sight of the weapons isn't enough to convey the danger, then page three does it for the reader. It reveals the dead body in the pickup truck, and suddenly we realize that this isn't a threat of a home invasion, robbery, or something of the like. Murder is on their mind. While their mother is about to endure the worst moment of her life, we are introduced to her children, Bodie Kinsey, and our main character of the series, Tyler. Right away, Hill manages to establish these characters with speedy efficiency. The inquisitive childish curiosity of Bodie, the trust between Kinsey and Tyler, and Tyler's struggle with self-identity. He's in the throes of teen angst, angry at his parents for what he perceives as punishment by having been dragged from their San Francisco home. As he dwells in his loathing, he imagines different versions of who he could be, as any of them are a better option than the boy stuck in this quaint little area with no one but his family. Which, of course, is what causes the depths of his pain when, on a stark jump cut to the present, he has returned to San Francisco, but only to bury his father. In the present, we are front and center with Tyler's grief. Though Nina was the first of locks of the first of the locks that we met, Tyler is going to be our focal point. And through his eyes and the wonderfully laid out paneling of Gabriel Rodriguez, we are provided those terrible small little moments that come with a funeral service of the forced painful small talk where no one can say anything without causing pain. The pain and additional information comes from Oren, who states that the murderer, one of their classmates, had killed others on the way to the locks. And from there, we meet another member of the Locke family, Rendell's little brother, Tyler's uncle, Duncan. Flipping between his conversation with Duncan and a flashback to when a younger version of himself overheard his parents talking about the key house and Rendell's childhood home in the awesomely titled Lovecraft, Massachusetts, we get a sense of the supernatural, with the idea that on some level, Rendell knew that the horror would befall his fate and that the house had chosen his little brother, Duncan. The scene concludes with Tyler, who had wished so badly to return to San Francisco to be swept away from this place, which has now forever been tainted by the murder of his father and the guilt that comes with knowing that he had taken the time that he had with him for granted. The flashback to the murder, Sam begins hunting for the children while Al has his way with Nina. Because we don't see Kinsey or Bodie in the funeral scene with Duncan, their fates are unknown um, and in danger of falling prey to this murderous duo. On the car ride from California, we learn a little bit about Duncan, who is an artist, and he stresses the theme that Tyler's arc will explore throughout the series, one referenced earlier as he looked upon different reflections of himself in the pool. You're going to decide who you are, not someone else. They arrive at Key House, and what an arrival. Through the visual potency of Gabriel Rodriguez, the island is rendered in beautiful detail, and the house itself is an architectural marvel. 
a beautifully designed creature, which it needed to be, because as Tyler and Duncan talk about it, it has a name, and therefore we have just met the next character in our series, one who shares half the book's title with our main character. We just met our lock, now we have met our key. And with this reveal also comes the reveal that the other locks, despite the pain and the horror they'd experienced, hadn't befallen the same fate as Rendell. And as the flashbacks to that horrible day continues, we learn of the relationship between Tyler and Sam, that Sam had believed the murder of Rendell was something that Ty had wanted, and now the truth of Ty's guilt comes to the surface. As he faces off against his father's murderer in the dark of the basement, he manages to get the best of him with a brick while Nina dispatches Al with a hatchet to the back of the head. By the pool house, a location of significance within this story, Kinsey and Tyler discuss their father's murder, and despite any toughness her dreads and piercing might convey, Kinsey is a vulnerable young woman who is suffering from a terrible loss. As they leave, Rodriguez keeps us by the pool, and longtime readers will know that he was wise to do so, as it suggests that we are the voyeurs here, staying behind and watching them leave. That we are stuck as they are free to move, a condition which our antagonist is for familiar with, and one that has kept him locked within the pool house. We realize that Sam has not been murdered, and instead is fated to exist within a jail cell for juveniles, but though he is imprisoned, he's not alone, as a ghostly face emerges from the toilet. This is our first introduction to the villainous Dodge, who promise, whose promises of new faces and opportunities, opportunities speak to his devilish nature. And then we get the first introduction to the keys, as Bodhi uses one to exit the door, but only to find that his spirit steps through as his body remains on the floor. And with that, the door shuts, closing the chapter on this first issue. And this is, spoiler alert for later on in the series, um, Bodhi or Body, however you want to pronounce it, if it's, if it's Body which some circles have pronounced it that way. I mean, that's apt um, because he can leave his body and this will all come full circle as, you know, Bodhi leaves his body and the Dodge will wind up taking his body um, in the final arc of the series. Um, Now, just note that when reading this, just... Note the sheer amount of doorways that you see on every page. Rodriguez continues to, to, to reference the importance of doorways, and there isn't a page that doesn't include characters walking through doorways, framed by doorways, whether it be a hatchway door into the basement, a fence entryway, a casket, a church door, doors to rooms framed by the hallway. With the images of thresholds constantly in play, Hill and Rodriguez are visually laying the foundation of the concepts of what might lay beyond the thresholds. Mysteries, long-buried secrets, guilt, parental issues, alcoholism, and ultimately a doorway to another world entirely. Issue 2. Here's the Wikipedia. Bodhi continues to explore the wellhouse, experimenting with the ghost key, learning he can teleport around the property by thinking about who he wants to see. Back in his body, he soon hears an echo speak to him from the well. He uses the ghost key to descend into the well as a ghost. At the bottom, he finds a woman who senses his presence and speaks to him. She asks him to come back when he isn't a ghost, claiming that she wants to be his friend. 
Bodhi returns and is told stories by the lady in the well about magical keys and doors. The lady tells him that she is an echo, that she was brought to life in the well house, but can't leave through a door without fading away. She tells him that the only way that she can leave the well house is with the, with the anywhere key. The lady asks Bodhi to bring her a mirror and a pair of scissors so that she can cut her hair. Bodhi complies, dropping a bag down the well. The lady, revealing herself to Sam as Dodge, delivers the items to Sam in the detention center so that he may use them to escape. My review. The issue begins with uh, first with the comic within the comic. Uh, this one drawn as if Bodhi had drawn it, detailing the murder of his father. Uh, the move to Lovecraft, and his new ability to turn into a ghost by using the ghost key. This is then discussed by Nina and Duncan, who shares their sadness while discussing the ways in which Duncan and Rendell used to play as children. This reference begins to grow the mystery of the past of the house and the past of our characters. Unbeknownst to adult Duncan, the games he and his brother played were far more than just games. If issue one belonged to Tyler, then issue two belongs to Bodhi. With us given a flashback to Rendell's funeral, this time through Bodhi's eyes. And it's not just a little boy playing with a magic key that he's found. That would be the easy beat. Instead, Hill lets the supernatural component function as a means for the character to come to an understanding of his father's death. Through his eyes, Bodhi checks in with his family members, and in essence, Bodhi functions as the spirit of his family. He's the future, he's the baby, the heart, the soul, who, despite the tragedy that's befallen him, is unblemished and continues to be pure. He's the one who is able to absorb the totality, the, uh, the totality of Rendell's passing as evidenced by the very sweet conversation between he and Nina by the pool. Hill captures that childlike innocence when she asks him if she had seen Dad. His response is beautiful. No, he says, he couldn't find him. Maybe he doesn't know that they moved. And Nina, rather than getting upset with him the way that Kinsey and Tyler had, her response is very sweet and tragic. Give him a kiss from mom, she tells him, and she uses the moment to tenderly but honestly ask him to stop making the comics like the one that opened up the issue. As things And things take a very... Uh, <clears throat> Very quick turn from the tender to terrifying as Bodhi is lured into the well house by a mysterious whistling. He investigates, discovering a well in the middle of the room, and after calling down to hear his own echo, the echo calls back. Like any good Stephen King-related story, nothing good can come from a child speaking to mysterious voices from dark, watery spaces. Naturally, Kinsey and Tyler don't believe that a voice is speaking to Bodhi, but it doesn't stop him from investigating. He uses the ghost key to fly down the drain where he meets Dodge, here in female form, the girl at the bottom of the well. Dodge begins to play the long game, getting his-slash-her claws into Bodhi through friendship. As the only, quote, unquote person who believes Bodhi, Bodhi now has a confidant. Dodge plays up the fairy tale quality of her imprisonment, stating that echoes live in the well but can't live outside the door. She continues to play it up, referencing being Rendell's echo. And like any good devil figure, he mixes truth with lies. The lies, of course, is that she um, just that that she's just an echo and is a helpful figure. The truth being the doorways and the keys. Here's where we start getting a sense of the scope and rules of the Keyhouse and the possibilities of where this series can take us. 
The issue concludes with Bodie dropping a mirror and scissors into a well. In the well, we see that Dodge is holding up a mirror to her face, revealing a rotting corpse, and using the mirror and the water is able to pass the scissors magically to Sam in his penitentiary, providing the keys to his escape and allowing his corporeal tool to be let loose in the world. So some general thoughts. Here it is. Here's the introduction to Dodge our villain. Um, and what an introduction. There's gender bending occurring here. There is a mysterious quality to it. Like I said, there's a fairy tale element to it. Um, the fact that he's a monster, he, she is a monster at the bottom of a well and invokes classic, um, ogres from, uh, folklore. Like I said, it invokes Stephen King stories. Um, and, it is very alluring. It is very innocent, um, but it's also very, very dangerous. We get a lot of wolf imagery here um, in a dream of Bodies, which is foreshadowing to like the, the true essence of what Dodge is, Dodge the wolf. Um, and we have uh, <clears throat> just the danger of... Sam murdering his way out of the prison with the supernatural assistance from the mysterious well-dwelling entity. So, again, this is playing on, you know, very old-school tropes of, um, you know, Dracula needing uh, Renfeld, of uh, Flag needing uh, Trash Can Man, you know, of Gaunt needing Ace Merrill and... Um, Buster Keaton, you know, so we, we have seen these supernatural entities play with fools throughout centuries and, um, Dodge and Sam are the, the latest combination here. Issue three from Wikipedia, Sam Lesser escapes the detention center, killing several guards in the process. He begins traveling towards Massachusetts to confront the locks. Meanwhile, Kinsey Locke struggles with her image, having abandoned her more eccentric style in an attempt to blend in at Lovecraft Academy. She meets and befriends fellow students Jackie Veda and coach Ellie Whedon, a classmate of her father's. After taking some advice from Ellie, Kinsey cuts her hair and assumes a style closer to her older image. As they speak, Ellie becomes distracted by Kinsey's bracelet, noticing a key in it. As issue, and here's my review, as issue one belonged to Ty, issue two to Bodie, then issue three provides us clear insight and a proper introduction to Kinsey, which is important because her limited time until this point could have neglect, uh, relegated her to supporting character without much depth. But Hill signaled to us in issue two that there was more complexity to Kinsey than originally thought. In the first issue, when we see her, her hair is styled in dreads, and she has a lot of piercings. Shockingly, when we see her in issue two, the piercings are gone, as are the dreads. Usually in fiction, when someone undergoes a trauma, we tend to see our characters transform themselves through a makeover, not unlike what we see from Kinsey when we first meet her. So it's flipping the trope by having her more straight-laced than alternative. Her justification is that she's already gone through a lot and doesn't want the attention that would come from the dreads. It's small little character beats like this that reveal the thought process that Hill puts into his character work. And it's the details that matter, like how she guilts herself for not being brave during Rendell's murder and the bruises on Bodhi's throat that indicate just... <clears throat> how hard she was squeezing his neck to prevent him from making any noise. 
Even the handoffs from scene to scene are deftly handled, as the memory to that day conjures Sam in a way as the next scene that Sam is in his jail cell preparing for his moment of escape. Hill, rightfully so, doesn't give us the scene through Sam's perspective, but through the eyes of the guard and janitor walking by. Two panels are dedicated to establish their humanity in order to butter them up before having Sam slaughter them. And in this moment, Hill takes the opportunity to continue to establish the character of Sam, presented through the eyes of the prison employee who doesn't see a child, but a murderous monster who is coming to get him. The transitions from scene to scene continue with clever layers, moving from Sam with the gun to track tryouts with Kinsey running at the crack of an albeit imaginary starter's pistol. And it's not just about Kinsey joining the track team. Hill makes the point to show that he's not just establishing her high school existence, but the act of participating in track is reinforcing her character trait of running away from her problems and her past. And physically, as well as metaphorically, she's really good at running, to the point where she's admired by the best runner on her team, who invites her for weekly running debates dates, but Kinsey is afraid of making connections for fear of what they might learn about her. Just as we saw in the previous issue, though this issue focuses on one of the Locke children, Hill uses the perspective to provide insight into the other children, from Ty, who is working through his grief through hard manual labor, to Bodhi, who continues to try and get someone to believe his ghost adventures. Hill weaves in mystery as Bodhi suddenly, suddenly comes to. Something's wrong. Something terrible happened. He's telling mom about it now. The one whose name means born at night. The man to whom he's referring is a police detective, Mutuku, who confirms to Nina that Sam Lesser has escaped from his Californian juvenile uh, detention facility. And in the follow-up conversation with Kinsey, she confirms that his name indeed means born at night. And though he's assured her that he'd be caught immediately, Rodriguez shows Otherwise, as Sam is already in Wyoming on his way to Massachusetts. Much like Michael Myers finding his way to Laurie Strode and her subsequent offspring in the variation of sequels, the boogeyman is on his way, and he won't be stopped. Keep an eye on Nina in this scene. If you haven't picked up on it by now, every scene that you see of her is accompanied by a bottle of wine. At school, Kinsey is triggered by the smell and sight of paint which automatically brings her back to the murder. And the following conversation with Coach Ellie Whedon, we got a couple of tantalizing mysteries, the first of which being a bracelet that Ellie seems to recognize due to the key being on it, which immediately is followed by Ellie taking a yearbook off the shelf, revealing a soon-to-be iconic photograph of her high school self, along with high school Rendell. Not only is this a reveal that Ellie had known Kinsey's father, but the man whose arms she is held um, by is the devil himself, Dodge, who should look familiar to viewers, even though the gender is swapped from the girl that we met at the bottom of the well. Notice in the picture that Lucas Caravaggio, who we know as Dodge, is eyeballing Kinsey's bracelet, worn in the picture by Rendell himself. The issue concludes with yet another Kinsey hair change, this time a compromise between her two previous looks, this one debuting with a more empowered Kinsey ready to run alongside a friend rather than running away from one. Issue 4, Wikipedia. Sam continues his journey towards Lovecraft while killing all witnesses. He also recalls how he killed Rendell Locke and Ty asks Sam to kill his father in an angry moment. Review. 
Issue one was Ty's, issue two was Bodie's, issue three was Kinsey's, and here at, in, at issue four, we focus on the Locks family's boogeyman, Sam himself. He's making his way across the country, using the drivers, but being used in the process. In the flashbacks, we see that Sam wasn't simply a monster, but the broken product of two abusive parents, and he was just a child trying to find his way until he had been pushed over the edge by a jock who he bites after a particularly offensive round of bullying. The flashbacks also reveal the relationship between he and Rendell, who was his guidance counselor. It's cringeworthy, however, hearing how much information Sam is picking up in their conversation, and during the scene, while looking at Duncan's drawing of the well house, he sees Dodge appear at the window and spell out, help me. Coinciding with Rendell, stating that he won't write a letter of recommendation due to his emotional health, this scene is loaded with tension as we see the events that will ultimately lead to the destruction of the Locke family, from the moment that Sam sits on the steps with Ty, who makes an off-handed joke about killing his dad, followed by the flashback to the conversations between Rendell and Sam at the summer house in the moments before he killed him. The truth of the murder comes to light, as Sam refers to the key to the black door and the key to anywhere and shed some light on the rules of the key house, how it uses the imaginative make-believe qualities of childhood that will fade into adulthood, which is reminiscent of Stephen King's It and continues to hint at the mysteries and the backstory between Rendell and his relationship with the house his children now call home. Issue 5 Wikipedia. As Sam arrives at Lovecraft, Bodie Locke is taken hostage by Dodge. Sam beats Kinsey unconscious, locks Nina and Duncan Locke in a cellar, and disables Tyler. He drags the siblings to their mother, demanding that she give him the Omega key and the Anywhere key. In the well house, Dodge tells Bodie that Sam has arrived and will kill his family unless Bodie brings her the Anywhere key. Bodie rushes out to save his family. Review. With only one more issue until the conclusion of the first story arc, things rapidly begin to pick up pace. Just like the guard and the janitor in the juvenile facility, we see the horror that is Sam through the eyes of his victims, the most recent being a fisherman who takes him to the island of Lovecraft. His puppeteer, meanwhile, has run out of luck with Bodhi, who is, in, who is onto her tricks. At the very least, he suspects that something is very wrong, and just as he's about to leave the well house, we realize that she's not as helpless as she said that she was, and the image of her reaching for him out of the dark is truly unsettling. Be it that they're face-to-face and corporeal form to corporeal form, he calls her on her lies, which she spins into half-truths like the good devil that she is, and despite her devilishness, there's an honesty within him, her, it, as she and Bodhi talk about his father, who would have done anything for her once upon a time. While Bodhi remains at the mercy of Dodge, Kinsey is attacked out of the darkness by Sam, who quickly locks Duncan and Nina in the wine cellar and holds Tyler at gunpoint. As he demands the Anywhere key, Dodge lets Bodhi go. She now has two underlings working for her to retrieve the key, and at this point we see how much of a tool Sam was all along, a disposable piece of equipment that was manipulated by this creature, much in the way that Bodhi is now. And with that, our penultimate issue is complete. Our players are in position, and the only one who can save the day is the youngest lock child. But at what cost? Let's find out. 
from the Wikipedia summary in issue 6. Bodhi uses the ghost key to find the bracelet which contains the anywhere key and gives his and gives to the echo in the well house. She escapes and uses the gender key to become Zach Wells. Meanwhile, Sam almost strangles Ty to death, but he is saved and he falls through the ghost door. Kinsey is able to shoot Sam, but he escapes. Zach finishes him off before throwing him into the ghost door. Zach visits a woman and joins the Academy and befriends Tyler. Review. We pick up where we left off with Sam holding Tyler at gunpoint in the wine cellar. And after he demands that Nina provide the anywhere key and the key to the back door, Nina puts all of her chips on the table in the hopes that when she tells him that Tyler can show him where to find the keys in the bedroom, that Tyler will be able to get the gun in her drawer and put an end to Sam. The tension is mounting. Who's to say what will happen, who will live or die at this point? With Tyler's wrists bound in duct tape behind his back, how the hell is he expected to use the gun even if he gets it? For all Nina knows, she's sending her oldest child off to die. Meanwhile, Bodie follows Dodge's orders as it's the only way he can keep his family alive. While in astral form, he discovers that the Anywhere key is the one housed within the bravely worn Kinsey, hinted back at the issue when it stirred a memory within her track coach, Ellie. And in the bedroom, Sam manages to get the gun before Tyler does, with the tension increasing further. The gun that Sam had been holding prior had been unloaded, and now he is equipped with a fully loaded weapon. Thankfully, Tyler manages to escape his sight, but not for long. The chase behind Tyler, his hands bound in front with an armed murderer behind him. Tyler makes it to the ghost door, and as soon as he steps out, his spirit leaves, and now he realizes that Bodhi wasn't joking at all. In the wheelhouse... Dodge provides a meta-commentary on the Locke's children's place in the story, which makes this book tantalizing as it is. She informs him that Bodhi isn't coming in at the beginning of the book, but instead the final chapter, and knowing that a part of the story will deal with unearthing the secret mysteries of the previous generation is such a phenomenal hook. Armed with the Anywhere key, Dodge finally escapes the well house, and immediately using another key, he switches his gender back into his original form. Ty puts two and two together, re-entering his body and gaining an upper hand on the unsuspecting Sam, who is no match for Tyler and Kinsey. He goes off running and is beset upon by Dodge, who snaps his neck to immobilize, but not kill him, before throwing his useless body through the ghost door. He then uses the Anywhere key to reunite with Ellie, Kinsey's track coach, providing some payoff to the yearbook photo while dropping a mystery bomb upon us that he had killed her mother for her. The issue concludes with Dodge, having befriended Tyler, is introduced to Kinsey and Bodie as Zack, as the elder Locke children head off with their new friend Bodie, sorry, with their new friend, Bodie finds the key that'll kick off the next story arc. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is volume one of Lock and Key, Welcome to Lovecraft. So guys, um... I hope that you enjoyed this episode. For me, it is getting late. I finally concluded it. Um, so again, happy 4th of July, everybody. I will be back sometime uh, next week with my review of the second volume in Lock and Key. So for those of you who have been watching Nosferatu that wish that I was reading not that I was reviewing Nosferatu, um, you're going to get some Joe Hill in the form of Lock and Key. And if you haven't read Lock and Key, go out to Amazon. Go out to your local brick-and-mortar comic book stores or, you know, fire up your computer and order it online. 
You can download it onto um, Comixology and read it on your iPhones, however you want. Although I do recommend going out to your local brick-and-mortar comic book stores to pick up a copy because Lord knows how long we're going to have brick-and-mortar comic book stores. So support them while they last because that's a special experience. And seeing as how we're talking about comic books, the ability to hold the art in your hands um, to hold a comic book or a trade paperback in your hands and smell the pages and smell all of the pages within a comic book store it's very special and like I said I don't know by the time my daughter is my age I don't know if that's going to be a thing of the past so um, enjoy it guys and enjoy your fourth if you have a long weekend enjoy that if you have a summer or you're going on vacation enjoy that enjoy the time that you have um, with the people that you care about, with the books that you care about, with the fiction um, that you care about, escape into other worlds, do what you can uh, to get through life however you need to, find your key, find your magic door, explore the magic, and I will see you here next week where M-O-O-N spells Stephen Kingcast. <laughs>